Greetings, Hokie fans. Welcome to the latest edition of Terradome Talk. I'm here with Jonathan Hagee, back with Joshua Hollifield. Josh, it's good to get back after weeks of some illness and some trips and some crazy life happenings going on. Uh, you know, before we start this, congratulations to you. Got engaged earlier in the week, coming off a big trip from uh, to a Universal Studios. Uh, how's it going, Josh? We're, I, we have, it's been a while since we've connected, man. Well, you know, I did horror nights while I was in Universal, and it seems like that's been what's been on the field the last couple of weeks. So. Yeah, absolutely. You did it last week at Universal. We, uh, the fans that were here did it last Saturday in Lane Stadium. Uh, you know, Virginia Tech football, uh, for all intents and purposes, kind of gone off the rails here the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, you look at the Notre Dame game, obviously it was Virginia Tech's game to win late in the game, eight-point lead. Everything's looking up. Everybody's probably in the stadium feeling really good about the direction of the program and the season. Notre Dame scores, uh, I believe it's 12 points in the last, uh, yeah, 11 points, excuse me, in the fourth quarter uh, to take the 32-29 win. Uh, you know, you hear the old saying, we snagged <laughs> the feet from the jaws of victory. Uh, just a heartbreaking finish there in Lane Stadium against Notre Dame. Yeah, it was, a, it was a kind of conglomeration of things that were happening. You know, Tech had the momentum and everything, and then you had the series where – Burmeister got injured, Blumberg had to come in, and we seemed really limited. Um, I know a lot of people are going to blame the two-point conversion, but that really wasn't it. It just was a connection of a lot of bad things happening at one time that I think really took the season and really changed its direction pretty quickly because, I mean, we were on the other end of it with the West Virginia game where we were the team coming back, and we just couldn't finish. And, of course, Notre Dame did, but we couldn't. So it definitely changed a lot of perspective in that one night. Yeah, I mean, you look from a standpoint on defense uh, for Virginia Tech, the, Notre Dame played three quarterbacks in this game. Uh, Jack Cohn starts, struggles early, does come back in, and ultimately ultimately leads Notre Dame to the victory. Uh, Tyler Bushner comes in. He kind of was a – he made a few mistakes, but he was able to make some plays with his feet that kept Notre Dame in uh, in the game late. Burmeister, 15-30, not a great completion percentage. He, do, he did get hurt earlier uh, in, in the third quarter. Threw for 184 yards, no touchdowns, one interception. The huge gutsy run coming back in. Uh, you know, he, he'd been out of the game. Connor Blumrick had been playing quarterback. Blumrick goes down, unfortunately, for the season. Braxton comes back in, scores a touchdown with his feet. Uh, you know, I, I thought Braxton really showed that gamer aspect in, against Notre Dame, and, and it made a lot of plays. Yeah, it was definitely one of those moments you would have thought was going to be on a highlight reel sometime that we were going to talk about this season. But it just seemed like – from that moment, we did everything we possibly could to turn the game against ourselves, whether it was the three and out that we had where we only took about 45 seconds off the clock or whether it's Dax being called for the targeting play that took him off the field and really changed the composure of the defense, it seemed like. Yeah, I thought our defense played pretty well in this game. I know everybody's going to point to the fourth quarter not being able to hold the lead there and get the stops ultimately when we needed them. But uh, I think you look back at Jermaine Waller's pick six. I, I really thought that that was a – obviously, it's a huge momentum play, but I really thought that, that play – Virginia Tech was kind of teetering. Like we said, Burmeister had been knocked out of the game. Blumrick wasn't showing a lot with his arm. We knew points were going to be at a premium already with our full-scale offense, much less with our backup quarterback. Uh, I, I thought Waller really changed the dynamics of that game late with that pick six. Yeah, the defense was not, by any stretch of the imagination, the weak point of the team that night. It seemed like, you know, we were, for the most part, doing well up to a point, and then we'd have one series where we got out of sorts, but we'd figure it all out. And so, I mean, if you look back at the third down efficiency, that's where I really look to see what your defense is doing. They were only three for 12, so they weren't finishing drives either. It just seemed like our offense continuously was giving them the ball back and opportunities to put more points on the board. Yeah, and on the flip side of that, Virginia Tech was 8 of 17 on third down efficiency. So we executed on third down pretty well, but to your point, in the red zone. Uh, we were up 7 nothing. I think we had the ball on the two. I wasn't a huge fan of the play sequence there on the goal line. I, I know a lot of the fans want us to go – uh, for the touchdown there on fourth and goal, I certainly probably would have done that. But hindsight's twenty twenty. We could second guess all day. I certainly understand why you would take the points there, especially with the way our defense was playing. Ultimately, not getting in the red zone there ended up being the difference in the game. Uh, that's not an uncommon theme to, to this season so far with Virginia Tech's offense. Yeah, I think that, you know a lot of people say you know how the red defense was playing, but the thing about it is you also have to trust your defense not to allow a team drive ninety nine yards if you're going to try to finish off drive. We've struggled so mightily in the red zone. It almost seems like we need to take more of those opportunities to try to score when we're inside the five 
And even if it means flushing away three points every once in a while, this offense is so anemic at points that we need the success to try to build up the confidence in that area. Right. So, you know, coming out of this game, uh, I, I remember walking out of Lane Stadium to my car, and I know certainly all of Hokie Nation was feeling this way. Uh, I, I left kind of with an empty feeling. You know, a lot of times in these games, especially a non-ACC game, you feel like, well, we played really hard, we competed. But it just kind of this felt a little bit deflating. We were the better football team that night. Uh, you also had to feel like that you were two executions in the red zone on offense for being a 5-0 and top 10 football team. Without a doubt, I mean, we, we look at – you kind of have to look at connection between the West Virginia game and the Notre Dame game because it's both two games we weren't able to finish when the opportunity was there for us to do so. And I think those two games combined really kind of led to what happened against Pittsburgh in the next week. Yeah, and, you know, looking at that game, moving on <clears throat> to last week's game in Lane Stadium, uh, you know, the coastal favorites for all intents and purposes at this point in the season, uh, Pittsburgh Panthers, 5-1. and one, now 2-0 in the ACC, beat Virginia Tech 28-7. to uh, I thought early we had decent energy. Uh, the defense got a stop coming out, you know, especially with Dax out for the first half due to the targeting call against Notre Dame uh, that you alluded to. They get a big stop. I think we had the ball at the 50 to start field position. We did absolutely nothing with it, and then it just continued. It seemed like the snowball and go. Uh, there's an uphill battle from there. Pitt wins 28-7 to and really leaves a lot of questions surrounding the Virginia Tech football program. Yeah, without a doubt, this was one of the worst performances we've seen in Lane in a couple of years. It's one of those that really disheartens the fans. You know, it, it kind of points out the weaknesses that we had before we were kind of skating by. I think we were playing a little bit above ourselves if you really look back, uh, especially with the way the offense was performing. But in this game, when the offense completely just fell apart, it was obvious that we've got a lot of holes that we're going to have to fill one way or another, whether it's play calling or whether it's people really stepping up. I think the thing that really stuck out to me the most is just the lack of a running game. We really don't have one at this point, and it really came to fruition in this game. Yeah, I mean, 90 yards total on the ground for the game for Virginia Tech on 28 carries for a 3.2-yard uh, per carry rushing average. Uh, on the flip side of that, Pitt carried the ball 44 times for 208 for almost five yards per carry. Uh, you're not, you're not going to win a lot of football games. If you can't stop the run and you can't run the ball, you're not going to win a lot of football games with that formula. I believe Virginia Tech had 74 yards of total offense at halftime. To your point, you said it was one of the worst games in Lane Stadium that, uh, in, in recent or in the past few years. I'm going to go on record saying as a longtime Virginia Tech fan, it may be the worst game I've ever seen in Lane Stadium as a Tech fan. Definitely top five. I thought the team lacked energy. I thought they lacked focus. Obviously, we lacked execution. And I'm not one that's normally critical of the program, but I think you just have to call it what it is at this point. And I, I did not think the football team – was represented itself very well last Saturday from from top to bottom. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that is really hard as a fan to take away from that game. Someone that really stood out and showed that they were really, you know, fully invested in the game. I mean, you could look at Trey Turner, you know, with three catches for 73 yards. And, you know, he had a solid game. But, you know, when your quarterback only produces 134, it's kind of hard to get excited about that. Um, also, if you look at Malachi Thomas, you know, He's shown some flashes of being a, a, a stronger back than maybe, you know, we kind of thought at the beginning of the year. And maybe he's deserving of more carries. But, again, it's a, as a full program on that side of the ball, it really doesn't seem like there's a whole lot to be excited about right now. Yeah, I mean, Virginia Tech pretty much had resigned themselves coming into the game, at least if you look at the game plan, that they weren't going to be able to run the ball in pit. Uh, Burmeister threw it 32 times. You probably would like to see that 10 less attempts, you know, from a schematic standpoint. I know what they're trying to game plan. Uh, 11 completions, 32 attempts, 134 yards, one touchdown, one interception. Uh, I think at this point we have to recognize that Braxton's hurt. Uh, he, he's playing hurt. This is not the Burmeister that we even saw last year in the opener against NC State or last year at uh, the season finale against UVA or the North Carolina. He wasn't perfect against North Carolina. He was far better than this. I, I think Braxton's hurt. Well, but here's my question that you have to ask in that situation, because we obviously know Braxton's given us everything he can this year. But who do you blame on the fact that we don't have anything behind Braxton? You know, we had all the opportunity in the world during this offseason to pick up a transfer, find someone in a smaller school to start working into the system. And, I mean, no disregard for Knox Cadem at all. You know, he's really a, a great individual and has shown flashes of being able to be capable. But 
we're in a situation now where we have absolutely nobody behind Braxton Burmeister that we can trust in that position to where a guy has to go out there, obviously hurt, and try to still carry on. Yeah, and I, I think there's multiple layers to that answer. I think, first of all, <clears throat> to your point about Knox really quick, uh, I, I think that Knox, it's really unfair to him for us to say that there's nobody behind Braxton because I thought last year when Knox came in against Clemson, I thought he showed some some nice things. I think that he was put in a horrible situation against Richmond. Uh, I think were we on the six when they brought him in. Uh, I, I didn't think that was an opportune time to, to try to get him some reps. He throws a pick, and therefore he's been labeled by the fans and, and by the program as a guy that's just not ready or doesn't have it. One play, regardless, wouldn't define whether or not he has it or not. But the spot, this, the situation he was put in really is totally unfair to him for us just to make the snap judgment like that. I think the second part of that is, I mean, we know where the, the blame falls. I think it has to fall on the coaches for lack of quarterback recruitment, retention, and development. And uh, I, I think they did recruit well from a standpoint. You look at what Hen and Hooker is doing now at Tennessee and even how he played here and what Quincy's doing at North Dakota State. I think the fact that we let both of those guys go without retaining one and trying to sell them on, hey, you're one play away or you can compete, maybe they were just tired of not hearing what they wanted to hear. But at the same time, you look at every Virginia Tech quarterback to this point, year in and year out, they seem to take a step back from one season to the next, where most quarterbacks get better from year one to year two to year three, hours continually decline. Well, I mean, it's not only just that, it's also the fact that you've got to look at these young men you look at Hendon Hooker, he's been put in a different type of system, and he seems to be thriving. You get a guy like Quincy Patterson, who, you know, by all means, is not the best thrower that's ever walked across campus. But he's also now in an offense where he seems to fit. Is it that hard of a, or a stretch or a reach to say that we can't develop an offense that fits the players that we have? Or can we recruit to the system that we're going to run? Because it seems like that's the biggest issue we have. Uh, <clears throat> again, I, I think it's both. I think that the coaching staff had a vision. At this point, I'm not even going to say has a vision. I, I think they had a vision. I think the proof is in the pudding that it's not working out. And, and, and I'm on record as being a Fuente defender. I like Justin Fuente. I think he's a very good person. I think he knows the X's and O's of football. I'm not saying he's a bad football coach. Sometimes things just don't work out. And I think the vision they had, I don't think they're necess they've necessarily been able to recruit the type of players they wanted. Uh, to achieve that, and then I think the type of players they've gotten from an offensive standpoint, they haven't been able to scheme around to make them successful. And I, and I, you know, we can sit here and argue all day: Does Fuente deserve to be retained? Does he not? Has he done a good job? Is he a good football coach? But at the end of the day, first and foremost, his job is to be able to bring in talent. Two of the biggest jobs of a college football coach are to be able to bring in the talent and then to be able to game plan and scheme around that talent. And we've shown a serious lack of being able to do both ever since 2017. Well, it, the thing that's obvious at this point, and it, it's it's beaten, been beaten up all week long, is that an individual who's been in the system for two years is further along developing players than an individual that's been in the system for seven years. And, and that's the issue that we have right now. One side of the ball seems like it's gotten itself ready, it's fit a system, and it's working, and the other side of the ball seems like it's floundering, you can't find its footing. Right, and you're, you're alluding to Justin Hamilton versus Brad Cornelson. I totally get that. Um, I like a lot of our offensive staff. I, I think Vice and Chivas do a really good job. I think there's been some positives of Lechtenberg. Again, I think if you're going to point the finger, I think you have to point it at quarterback development. And, and you know, really it's related to football or, I mean, to baseball. Um, your quarterback, quarterback development is kind of like pitching development. If you don't have pitching in baseball, you're not going to be very good. You don't have a quarterback that's at least serviceable or that term game manager you're going to be in a lot of trouble. And we have not been able to develop a game breaker nor a game manager since Gerard Evans. And I'm not going to say that we developed him. No, I, and it, it, the thing about it is, is that there's nothing inspiring that's coming through right now. I mean, we're looking at, truly looking at either a red-shirted freshman or a complete true freshman who will have to be at the helm of this offense next year. And that's a scary proposition to have. So there's definitely going to have to be something – coming down the line as far right. as and, and this, again, this is not a knock on Braxton. I, I think a healthy Braxton is fine. But regardless of that, there needs to be somebody behind him that can play. And, you, you know, you joked right before we started the podcast, I think you're spot on, that we have a recruit in this year's recruiting class that if he were on campus this week, he would probably start based on the situation we're in. And he's not even – he's still playing high school football. <laughs> and if he were at Virginia Tech, think about what we're saying. 
a proud program like Virginia Tech that has been at the top of college football for lots of years. I know we've struggled here recently. We've had ups and downs. But in the history of college football, from Frank Beamer on, to think that we don't have one serviceable quarterback that can play is a pretty astonishing comment to make and really a referendum on the program. And it also gives you guys – and the thing about this on top of that is it's not giving the opportunity for guys who are in the system to develop because obviously we went out and we recruited a very strong quarterback last year. I, I don't want to by any means overlook what talent we brought in, but he's going to be thrown to the fire because the fact is there is no one there holding a spot where he can develop because we are so reliant on one individual at this point. And, and like you said, Braxton Burmeister is a very serviceable quarterback when he's healthy and he can do a lot of things that can help. But if you're not going to scheme towards protecting him and scheme towards things that make him successful, then you're really just throwing him into the fire. Right. And to your point about a grad transfer quarterback in the offseason, I think that, you know, the story has been told to this point. And and I think, again, the proof is in the pudding. I hate to overuse that term, but I I think it fits here that guys nationally are seeing the way that we use our quarterback. And, you know, a dual-threat guy that can throw the ball – doesn't want to come here and run the ball 25 to 30 times and beat himself up and affect his passing like that, he's also not going to be able to stay on the field. I mean, think about the issues we've had sans Gerard Evans. Gerard Evans is a freak of nature once in a lifetime, you know, not once in a lifetime, but he's a he's a very good talent. They don't – they're not just – you know, you don't find guys like that very often that are that big and that strong and that talented that can hold up. I mean, we, you look at Braxton Burmeister at his size, and you can tell that that's not the kind of game he needs to play to be successful. So it's really not surprising that Braxton's banged up here by week five or six. Yeah, I mean, you look back at Logan Thomas, you've got that same style of body. But the thing about it is, is that, again, we knew at the beginning of the season we did not have a QP or a hidden body style back there. We had a guy who's extremely quick, who's extremely mobile, but at the same time, he's not going to be able to carry the ball 10 or 11 times a game and not take abuse because he's just not that big. And the thing about it, it's not a detriment to him. It's the fact that that's not the type of quarterback he is. Right. And and I think you look at Quincy Patterson. He was built in that mold of a Gerard Evans and and the guys that the kind of size you need to play in the the offense that we're running. And it just kind of makes you scratch your head as to why that he was not given more of a measurable opportunity, especially – once the one or two, three times that he actually got to start and play a lot of the game, he was very successful. Uh, I, I, I mean, as a coach myself, you're a coach, uh, you know, practice is obviously a huge part, but it's not the only evaluation that should take place. There are guys I've played with them, you and I both know them, who play better when the lights turn on and it's game time. And if we're strictly saying that this guy's not ready to play because maybe he's not showing us everything in practice we want to see, but when he gets in a game, he's showing us more. Why are we not giving him more of a measurable opportunity to be the starter? That I'll guarantee you right now that Michael Vick, who is obviously the best quarterback Virginia Tech's ever had, did not practice as well as he played. He's not going to show those same that same dynamic ability in practice as he showed in the game. But I just think that sometimes we're selling these guys short based off of practice evaluation, and we're totally discrediting how they're playing in, in the games, which are what counts. And I think the thing about it is, too, you can go back even further in steps and find the, the catalyst of this, and I think that catalyst is Ryan Willis taking over in the ODU game. I think that literally finding or finding that piece and then having to stick to it because we had a lot of young guys we couldn't develop quick enough to get out there, whether it's Hendon, who only got a few carries his first year, whether it's QP, who we – failed to allow to throw the ball until last year. And they never got the opportunity to develop because we weren't game planning ahead. And it's now come to this point where we've got a transfer quarterback who is all we have in the program who's developed and ready to start. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, it's really, it, you're almost at a loss for words when you think about the quarterback development, because yes, Gerard Evans, should he stay the second year? Absolutely. Uh, but do we know he wasn't going to, Absolutely. So you had to plan for that. You know, Josh Jackson comes out in 2017. He wasn't Gerard Evans, but he, he was pretty good. Um, you know, won nine games as a starter, uh, had a great game against West Virginia in the opener. I, I really expected bigger things in 2018 from him. Of course, he gets hurt in the ODU game, but he had taken a step back. You could see it. He was not as good in 2018 as he was in 2017. Ryan Willis comes in. You think that you've got a guy there. He plays pretty well. 
uh, you know, in 2018, the team did not play well, but Ryan Willis played pretty well uh, from a statistical standpoint. Then it seemed like the coaches could never settle on a guy. Is it going to be J.J. when he comes back? Well, he transfers. Is it going to be Willis? Is it going to be Hooker? And there, it seems like there's just no plan. The, the evaluations are never concrete. We don't know who we're going with. We think we have a lot of good guys, but inevitably it turns into we don't have anybody. And instead of developing an offense around the quarterback, we come up with this vanilla plan that we seem to stick in whoever's in the backfield. And that, that's the issue that really comes up, is that you can't run the same set regardless of who's back there. You can't run the same set whether QP's back there, whether Burmeister's back there, whether Hooker's back there. And I think that's where we've gotten it at this point. We're stuck. And, you know, kind of, you know, fans can be as upset as they want to, call for coaching changes as much as they want to. But the thing about it is we've got to move on to Syracuse and look and see what we've got there. Right. And, and before we move on to Syracuse, I mean, I don't, I don't think we're saying anything here that probably Justin Fuente wouldn't admit to himself. Again, I'm not, I'm not a Fuente basher, and I certainly pull for him every week. Hope he does well. Hope the team does well. I mean, I love Virginia Tech football. I would never hope that, we're, that we fail. But at the same time, you have to be realistic about what's going on, and we just can't continue to put our head in the sand and act like that everything's okay. I mean, when you have 74 yards of total offense against an unranked opponent at home, or any opponent, but especially an unranked opponent at home that you should be better than year in and year out, that, that speaks to a serious problem within the program. You seven yards of rushing. I mean, that, we had seven yards of rushing in the first half, and it's, you look at it and you're like, how do we get to a point where we've got a quarterback who's out there with a bum shoulder, and yet we've got seven yards of rushing? Where, where did we gain playing that in? So, yeah, it's not about bashing the team by any stretch of measure. There's a lot of guys on that football field who have got a lot of talent who are going to go somewhere. And this, the scary part about it is we probably have two to three guys that could be first-round picks on a team that might not finish 500, and that's scary. Right, and, and it's going to be a couple years. You know, that's two years in a row that that could happen. I mean, you look at what Khalil Herbert's doing right now in the NFL. Uh, I, I mean, and you look at – like having James Mitchell last year, having Hendon Hooker and what he's doing at Tennessee, uh, having Nestor, Hudson, Darisol, Waller. I, I know Waller was banged up last year and far away opted out. But you look at some of these guys having big seasons this year, and you're wondering, why could we not put this all together last year? And certainly 2019, losing at UVA to lose the Coastal is inexcusable. Um, it, it just makes you wonder, what is the missing piece that can't put all this together? Uh, that leads us to this Saturday, Lane Stadium, another home game, Syracuse, 1230. Uh, Syracuse coming off a very close loss to Clemson, 17 to 14, and a very close loss the week before to a ranked Wake Clemson, or excuse me, Wake Forest team, 40 to 37, uh, and a three-point loss at FSU the week before, and a three-point win at Liberty. So that's pretty incredible to look, uh, or not at Liberty, but at home against Liberty, to look that their last four games have been decided by three points, either in their favor or against them. This is a very sneaky, dangerous Syracuse football team. Yeah, this is a team that's played above themselves all year. I mean, if you look at what the predictions were at the beginning of the year, they were going to be at the bottom of the Atlantic. Which, you know, they're still not too far off of it, but the thing about this, they are a dangerous team. They're a team that can be scary good when they need to be. There, there's nothing that really stands out about them. The running game is their strength, but, you know, they have a, a – predominantly senior defensive group. They have a good, strong team that, you know, can cause you problems. And it's the thing about it is, is with the team we have right now and the, the anemic state of our offense, it's going to be a close game. And it's a game that we're going to have to find a way to win if we want to get some result out of the season that we can be happy about. Yeah, and this is a Syracuse team that has Garrett Schrader at quarterback, 54% uh, completion percentage on the year, 818 yards, five touchdowns, three interceptions. Tommy DeVito's also played. He's been banged up. Uh, their leading rusher, Sean Tucker, 948 yards, 155 carries for 6.1-yard average, nine touchdowns. And also that Schrader's carried the ball 82 times for 418 yards and nine rushing touchdowns. This is a very potent rushing attack from Syracuse. Virginia Tech has done well against the run at times this year. Uh, you know, again, our, you hate to keep harping on this, but our defense stays on the field so long that it's inevitable that they're going to wear down and give up a big play here or there uh, in the running game. But for the most part, when the offense has given them any help at all, we've held up against the rush pretty well. Yeah, I think this is a game you're going to see. Well, of course, Dax will be back for the entire game, which I think bodes well as far as stopping the run. But you're also going to have the ability to load the box. This is not a team that's really going to break out 
in you know on the slide or on the deep routes because the fact is if you look sean tucker is not only the leading rusher he's also a leading receiver so you you're not looking at a very dangerous tandem out there wide receiver whether it's jackson or harris but the thing about it is is that we are in a position now where the defense has got to make up for what the offense can't do and so that rushing attack does give a little bit of fear because it's going to mean another game where our defense is on the field for a long period of time yeah, and Syracuse's defense is pretty solid as well. I mean, you look at Mikel Jones, leading tackler with 64 tackles, one sack. But Cody Roscoe, a defensive lineman, six and a half sacks, uh, you know, very disruptive in the backfield. This is a Syracuse team that can get after the quarterback, 24 sacks on the year. Virginia Tech's offensive line, I, I, I would say, has been average uh, at best this season, especially in the run game. passing, Protecting the quarterback, they've been a little bit better. But again, this is, you know, this could be a tough matchup for Virginia Tech if they're not ready to play because this is a Syracuse offense that's capable and a defense that's disruptive. Uh, so Virginia Tech's going to have to find some answer and some way to scheme some offense. Well, the thing about it is we're going to have to finish this week. It, it, it's going to be a situation where field goals aren't going to get the job done because it's a game where 21 points might be the winner. So if, it's, if you end up losing 17 to 21, you only have yourself to blame and how you finish inside the red zone because I think we're going to make trips there but whether or not we come out with points is going to be up to whether we can complete the series. Right. Syracuse comes into the game at 3-4 and four overall, 0-3 in the ACC. But like we just spoke about, all three ACC losses are by three points to Florida State, Wake, and Clemson. Certainly very tough opponents. A, a trending Florida State team that's starting to see the other side of some of the fruits of their labor. Uh, what's a key matchup in this game, Josh, that uh, you see really – being a huge difference. I think it's going to be have to be Gary Schrader's arm versus our DBs. I think the thing about it is if we can take away the passing game, we make them one-dimensional, that's going to allow us to stick nine or ten in the box, and that's going to make a big difference. I think we're going to see a lot of man pressure on the outside, trying to get those guys as close to the line of scrimmage as possible and may really shorten the time window that he's got to make throws. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Uh, I also would say it's our receivers against their secondary. Uh, I think we have to find a way to get open and get some separation. Trey has been doing a little bit better job of that the past few weeks. Uh, Caleb Smith, uh, especially last week against Pitt, it was very noticeable, got some separation, had some balls thrown his way. He just dropped them, and, and we certainly can't have that. Tavion has shown some flashes. Uh, you know, you look at a guy like Dwayne Lofton, Jalen Jones, uh, Jaden Payu. Those guys are starting to get some more time. Uh, I, I believe it was Dwayne Lofton had a very nice first down catch against Pitt last week. Payute has electric speed. It, you know, again, I don't want it to seem like we're piling on, but I'm looking at these offensive numbers from Syracuse, and we're supposed to have the better players, the better coaches, the better program. And you look from a statistical standpoint, they've played arguably just as tough a schedule, and they're able to scheme their guys open and get, and get production out of lower-ranked guys than what we're playing with. You just have to wonder, can Virginia Tech find a way to use Blackshear in space, to get Turner open, to use Tavion in space, and, and help Burmeister and, and make things a little bit easier for him? I would really like to see this week and try to focus on building up one running back in the system where we're getting a bell share that runs. I'd like to see Malachi Thomas be the one to do that. I'd like to see Blackshear doing more stuff out of the slot, trying to get us more opportunity on the passing game and really take away the worry for him lining up in the backfield and trying to grind out yards because the thing about it is this committee our running back committee has not worked all season long and it's time to try to develop players in certain positions where they can be effective and give us the most benefit yeah i'm, I'm actually going to take that a step further the running back by committee hasn't worked in six years uh th that hasn't been a productive source of offense it hasn't worked uh Khalil herbert as the featured back is what worked Gerard Evans as our primary running back at quarterback is what worked. Splitting the carries with the guys we've had under this coaching staff has not worked, and that's the bottom line. Uh, we have not been an effective rushing football team outside of Gerard Evans and Will Herbert since 2016. Uh, yeah, I, I think that we have to make, again, make Burmeister's job easier, give him simple throws that we can scheme open uh, early on, uh, we have to find the running game. Our offensive line is going to have to pick it up and, and create some holes. And their running backs are going to have to see them and hit them. There were times I noticed against Pitt and Notre Dame that the offensive line was creating holes and the backs weren't hitting them. Well, the thing about this is you also have to realize the timing that has got to be there for the offensive line. They know for Blackshear, you probably got to hold for a half a second shorter than you do for Holston. 
because Blackshear is a, a quicker back to the hole, but at the same time, he's not going to be able to beat the first level as many times as Holston was, or maybe the first contact. So it, it's a situation where you've got this committee system going on that it makes it really hard for everybody back there. It's hard to get flow going. It's hard for the offensive line to know what they're working with. And it, it's hard for everybody to build confidence. So I really do think that it, it's important as a team that we find – you know, try something this week. Try something different. Throw something out of the box and give a guy a shot that really hasn't had one this year. Yeah, I, I totally agree. At this point, what do you have to lose? I mean, you had, again, 74 yards of offense at half last week, seven rushing yards. There shouldn't be – I'm not saying there is, but there shouldn't be anyone on the roster that's not capable of that kind of production. So, if what we have on the sideline is going to take us down from that starting point, then we have an even bigger issue than what we think we have. Uh, you know, with all that being said, Josh, where do you see this game going? How do you see it playing out? I think that the defense does just enough this week. I, I'm not confident what our offense could do, but I do think our defense will make a couple turnovers, make a couple big plays. So I'm going to go 24 to 14. I think that 24 points is relying on the fact that the defense at least comes up with one score, whether it's a score where they actually put it in the end zone or a score where they get a turnover inside the 20 and we finish it. Yeah, I'm going to go with – I think our offense has a little bit of a high water mark this week. I think they find some plays. I think we win the game 31-21. And, and, and I think we I'm, – I'm the same as you. I think we find a way to win uh, and come out uh, on top here, if you want to call it that at the moment. Uh, you know, Pitt has Clemson this week. And then they have Miami, then Duke, then UNC, then UVA and Syracuse. So certainly a, somewhat of a tough stretch, as tough as the coach can provide at this point. Miami is another struggling team that you're kind of scratching your head. You, you have all this talent, and you, you know, you can't you can't do anything with it. Uh, where do you see Pitt going from here? I, I think that the coastal could be up for anybody. I think Pitt, Pitt is definitely the team that right now seems to have the command of what's going on. But I could also see – I could absolutely see Clemson going into Pitt and winning this week. I, Pitt always seems to find a way to lose when they really need to win. And then on top of that, you look at other games they've got. Miami's more talented than Pitt is. Uh, whether or not they're coached well enough to ever win against them, I don't think it's possible. But, you know, Miami could beat Pitt. UNC could beat Pitt on a good day. So I, I think that, you know, the Coastal is completely wide open. It's so wide open that the ACC network decided it was the Atlantic this week. So, you know, it's 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 a division that, you know, we could fall ourselves right back into competition. Yeah, I mean, if you didn't see what Josh is alluding to, uh, the ACC network tweeted out a graphic and put out a graphic this week talking about coastal chaos. But they showed the Atlantic or the Atlantic division standings. Uh, I'm sitting here looking at an article right now from ESPN that says Pitt is the ACC's best playoff hope that they're their best playoff contender. Uh, you know, I know that Pitt played well last Saturday or we played poorly or a combination of both. Uh, I think that Kenny Pickett's probably getting a tad bit more love than he deserves, and so is the Pitt football team. I don't think that they're a tremendous football team. Like you said, I just think the Coastal's down. I, I'm just – how you put a team that lost to Western Michigan in a playoff discussion, I don't know how you get there. But, uh, like I said, I mean, I, I understand that – you got to hang your hat on somebody as you're going through, but Pitt is just as vulnerable as everybody else who's out there. And just because they've had a string of three games where they've seemed pretty dominant, I, I could see them having three games where they lose close ones. Right. Uh, you know, going back to Virginia Tech, obviously Syracuse this Saturday, we certainly don't want to look too far ahead, but we're, we're going to play devil's advocate here. Uh, say that we beat Syracuse Saturday, going to Atlanta the next Saturday against Georgia Tech. Um, you know, really the end of the schedule, back end of the schedule for Virginia Tech, if they could get things together, is not insurmountable. You have a flailing Miami program. Duke's the worst team in the ACC. Uh, you know, you have a UVA team that's good on offense but susceptible on defense. They're very vulnerable as well. Uh, you have at, at Boston College without Dracovic, they're not nearly the team they would have been. Uh, you know, Virginia Tech still has a chance here, as crazy as some people would think it sounds, to go nine and three and 7-1 here in the ACC. I, I think if they do that, they probably win the Coastal. Is there any, do you see any scenario where Virginia Tech finds themselves in the ACC championship matched up against a Wake or NC State and win, wins the ACC? You know, the thing about it is, if after the Notre Dame game, I would have been right there in that belief system. I, I thought that we were in a situation where we were literally just a couple points shy of being a 5-0 and team, and I thought, you know, if we could have gotten Pitt out of the way, I think we would have really felt confident about our future going forward. 
But this team is just as destined to be three and nine as they are nine and three. And that's the scary thing as a fan is that you just can't seem to find a direction and feel comfortable with what they're going to produce on the field week in and week out. Right. And that has to be super frustrating for Justin Fuente as well. I mean, he has to be ready to pull his hair out because I, I, he probably, definitely more than us, sees flashes of what some of these guys can do. And it just seems like when they get out there on Saturday, for whatever reason, sometimes that doesn't translate to the field. And, and, and you know, I'm not unsympathetic to that as well. I, I mean, I would love to see Coach Fuente do well, uh, you know, and, and finish the season strong, but it, it's definitely going to be an uphill battle from an offensive standpoint. Well, the scariest part of the whole thing is the fact that with the Syracuse game this week, especially if it should turn against us, which I don't believe that it will, but if it should turn against us, you got four out of your last five games on the road in the ACC. And I realize that, you know, in most years, those four out of five road games wouldn't look too daunting. But for this team right now, that's a really hard climb. That If they were to lose to Syracuse this week, I don't know what motivates you to finish out strong. Yeah, I think this game, even more so than last week, makes or breaks the season. It's going to show whether or not this team is going to come back and fight and scrap and claw and try to make something out of the season or if they're just going to, you know, kind of rank – bring it in and call it quits for the season and, and say, well, better luck next year. Some of us will move on to the NFL. Some of us will come back and maybe play for a new coach. Some of us will, you know, transfer out. But this is going to be the, the week that really tells the tale of Virginia Tech football in 2021. You know, it's one of those things. You're looking at the schedule right here. The thing that stands out to me the most, and I, it's obviously there's a graphic in front of me, but the leading rusher for the entire season with Blackshear with 53 yards against Middle Tennessee. That is a scary fact. Yeah, <laughs> we both alluded to it. Virginia Tech has to find a run game. They have to find a run game. And I know we're sitting here in game seven, and people are like, you know, that's it's lunacy to even think that that's an option, that you're going to find a running game in the middle of the season. You know, I'm not asking for us to, to turn into Alabama's running game but or Georgia's running game, but at the same time, I want us to find more consistency. We should be at the 100-plus yard mark every single game, especially against two we're playing. 125 is, is something that every offense should have. If you can't get to 125, you better be throwing for 400, and we're not going to throw for 400 anytime soon. So it, you have to find it. when You can't just scheme away from the running game with the team that we have this year. It's not going to work. All right, before we wrap this up, um, you know, we've talked about the last slate of games. You, you alluded to four of those last six being on the road. Uh, we're at the halfway point in the season. Where do you see Virginia Tech football season going from here? I'm going to say that we end up with five wins. I know that that's somewhat pessimistic, but, I, you know, it's one of those deals that I think that Duke down there looks like a very tempting victory, and I am hoping beyond hope that UVA will be a win at the end of the season, regardless of who is at the helm. I, I think that we have to, as a program, have to have that, especially if they get the news that they might get in the next week. Right. And, uh, you know, for me, I th I th we've talked about it. I think we beat Syracuse. Uh, I, I think the most dangerous game in that slate left is at Georgia Tech because they're a younger team that hasn't had much success in a long time. They're just excited and happy to get anything they can, and they just continue to build momentum. Uh, whereas I think you could see us, if things started to turn the way they're trending, go away because these guys have, have – they expect more than just five or six wins. Whereas Georgia Tech, they get the six and six and bowl eligible. You know, they're going to be throwing a party in Atlanta. Uh, Boston College is kind of struggling without Dracovic. They're not having the season that many thought they would. Uh, so they're a little bit, you know, down as far from a, from a mental standpoint. Duke's the worst team in the ACC. Miami may be the only program struggling more than us in the ACC. And, again, UVA has a lot of holes. Brennan Armstrong's played well. Their offense is solid. They have a very tough slate coming up. They may be demoralized by the time they get to us as well. BYU, Notre Dame, Pitt still left to play, Georgia Tech, and then us. I mean, that's a tough slate of games. I think Virginia Tech, if they could get it together, could benefit from the fact that these other programs are struggling or will be struggling by the time they get to us, if not as much, if not more than we are. And I, I get all that. All that is absolutely on the table. But you could also look at all the opposite side. You could see Duke coming into Lane Stadium thinking getting two in a row at Lane Stadium could really be a great recruiting tool for them. You could look at UVA. It's, you know, they every season, the first thing they do is circle our game and then forget they have 11 others. Um, you have Miami, who it needs a quality win towards the end of the year to try to, you know, save a staff that's probably in the hottest spot that we are. 
And then, of course, you've got Boston College, who's still is playing for something in the Atlantic, even though they've been struggling the last couple of weeks. So it, every team has the exact opposite motivation as we do. But the thing about it is we have to bring it to the field every week. And I'm just keep continuing to question who's going to be that guy, especially on the offensive side. And again, it's not belittling the players we have over there. It's belittling the fact that we can't seem to find an identity over a course of several years and someone to lead the team. So that's the problem I have. Yeah, I, I think you're spot on with that evaluation. Uh, when you said it, something that's kind of hit me that you think about when Justin Fuente was brought here, uh, you know, it was really in the name of high-powered offense and, and, and a, lot of, a lot of points. Uh, but I do remember some people uh, after the hire talking about people think that Fuente's offense is based on a lot of plays and high yardage, but it's not. It's based on execution of lots of points. And, and I think you, even the philosophy shift from 2016 to now, 2016 uh, we, we ran a normal up-tempo offense uh, and it was very productive. Now it seems like that we run an offense where we know we're not very good. So we just try to run the play clock down even when we have momentum, we could be on a quick drive and have some really nice explosive plays moving down the field, and we will still slow the game down. And sometimes I think that hinders our productivity, for lack of a better term, on offense just because I don't think we have an identity. I think sometimes we go fast, sometimes we go slow, slow and Saturday we didn't go at all. And I think that I think we don't have an identity. I think that's a great point. Well, if you're a team that's got, you know, got a lot of multiple formations, got a lot of different play calls, it's one thing to be able to sit up in different sets and sit back there and wait for the play to come to you. But the thing about it is we don't. So we have to find some way to get an advantage against the team. And the advantage is not to sit out there for 30 seconds and allow the defense to read and see what we're going to get ready to set up and run and then run against it. Right. We certainly don't need less possessions. We, we, need, we need more possessions. Uh, so I, I've never, I haven't really thought, and I alluded to that even after the North Carolina game, that I don't quite understand why when we build some momentum offensively, we still slow everything down and don't continue to let that momentum snowball and go downhill on our opponents. Uh, but but I, I, what is our what offense do we run? I don't know if we're a pass first offense or a rush first offense. I think we want to be a run first offense, but you can't be a run first offense that can't run. But you also can't be a fat pass first offense that can't pass. So really, we're an offense that can't operate in any manner. We're an offense right now that manages the game so our defense doesn't get burned out. And that's something you can't be. If you don't have a finishing ability in some way, whether it is a powerful running attack like a Wisconsin does, or whether it is a solid short passing attack like you would have like a Tulsa or an SMU, then you're really going to get stuck. And we've gotten stuck. We don't have an identity. And therefore, without an identity, we don't know what we want to call and what we want to do in a week-to-week basis. Right, and, that, and that's a really tough spot to be in. It's an unfortunate spot to be in. It's certainly not a spot that Virginia Tech football should ever be in, that we feel like we don't have enough to at least be competitive on one side of the ball. I mean, it's just astonishing to even to even say and think about uh, that that's where we're at. Uh, you know, looking in the national landscape of college football this week before we wrap up the show – uh, Ed Orgeron let go at LSU. I don't think that surprised you or I. I think you and I and, and those that really follow college football uh, have been monitoring that story for a couple of years there and knowing, knew that the train was getting off the tracks and that Ed Orgeron, uh, his priorities weren't with football anymore for lack of, you know, being able to put it bluntly. Uh, uh, he, he just seemed to kind of lose focus and lose his identity in himself. And there were a lot of behind-the-scenes things going on in that program that led to him getting fired that the admin knew about, but once the losses came in, they had the ammunition to get rid of him. Uh, I'll start by asking, do you think that's a good move by the LSU admin? I know I know what your answer is going to be because you and I didn't think he should have been hired when he got the job. Uh, we didn't think he would keep it as long as he did, and we certainly didn't think he'd win a national title. Uh, but do you think it was a good move, and then who do you, who do you think replaces him? I think it's a great move. I think LSU is a program that can recruit with the best teams in the country. And you have to act quickly when you have a program like that because the fact is you don't want anyone to ever believe that you expect anything less than going to the national championship game. And so with a program like that, that's the type of message that you send out when you make a move like that. You say, we don't care what the rest of the season produces. We're not where we want to be or where we should be. And we're going to make a move now. 
Um, I think LSU is a place that Luke Fickle would be a great fit at. I think that he's a guy that, you know, has the ability to work with talent that's less than what is five-star caliber and get the best out of them. And the only thing that I think might be an issue for him there is that he's never really been on the stage that's going to be as big as LSU. And in the first place is going to be is out of his comfort zone, which is the Midwest. I think that he's a guy that, you know, if the Ohio State opening was there, he would be top on the line. Or if Notre Dame was there, he'd be top on the line. But getting out of his comfort zone and coming to LSU might be a challenge. But he's the guy I'd go after if I'm LSU. Yeah, there's been a lot of talk about Jimbo Fisher. Uh, he kind of squashed that the other day. He said he plans to fill his contract at A&M, and he loves it there. And I know they have been super loyal to him, and they've given him a whole lot of green reasons not to leave. Uh, his buyout's $95 million. That's that's insane. Uh, you, you know, we're talking about Fuente's buyout being $2.5 million and how hard that is to cover, and we're talking about Jimbo Fisher having a buyout, buyout of $95 million. I mean, that that's astonishing when I read that. Well, here's a surprising thing that might also surprise the people. I would not be completely shocked, not completely shocked, somewhat shocked, if the guy who's on the opposite sideline from LSU this week wasn't to walk over next year. I think he's a guy that really fits the LSU dynamic. He's the guy that's flashy. He's the guy that gets kids in and gets them excited about an offensive program. And, my gosh, you put Lane Kelton with the talent that LSU's got out there, you, you might be unstoppable. And there has been talk of Lane Kiffin. Uh, he seems to enjoy Ole Miss, but I could definitely see that. Uh, I, I think the, if you want to call it the dark horse candidate to watch out there is in their own state, Billy Napier at Louisiana, a guy that's certainly been mentioned if Virginia Tech has a vacancy. Uh, I think he's certainly a very strong candidate for that job. Uh, has worked for Nick Saban, worked for Dabo Sweeney, done a great job at Louisiana, turned them into a top 25 program from a ranking standpoint, not from an infrastructure standpoint. But Billy Napier uh, definitely is a, na a name to watch. I don't see James Franklin leaving Penn State. He may, uh, but some of the names at the top of their list would certainly go there, but I don't think they'll get them if that makes sense. But uh, I, I think you see Fickle end up at USC, and I think you see Billy Napier at LSU, but that's just my opinion. Well, here's another question for you. Since we're talking the landscape of the country, do you think Brett Venables is touchable this year because of the fact that Clemson really, you know, they're not exactly, don't get me wrong, they're not in a spiral. They're not going away. They will be fine. But I'm just saying with the opportunity that he sees right here, they're not at the top of the mountain. Maybe this is his opportunity to start looking. It, it's very possible. Uh, he just seems to really enjoy what he does. Uh, I know his son was in the program at Clemson. I think he wanted to coach there until he graduated. Uh, but it's it's always a possibility. I mean, when a lot of money's involved, you never know the right fit, right money. Uh, you start tapping into a guy's ego and telling him that this is the opportunity he's been waiting on and he can elevate his, his resume as a, a head coach in college football and be successful. You never know what could happen. Um, but I, I definitely could see Brett Venables, uh, you know, Brett Venables going somewhere this year and being a head coach. But I would have thought it would have happened five years ago and it still hasn't. So, uh, that, that's really a good question, though. He, he should be a top candidate in a lot of places. Uh, look at the other games this week. Let's talk about Henry Hooker and going to Alabama. I think that this is a game that, you know, has a, a scary notion to it for the Alabama fans because of the fact that it's been a while since the third Saturday in October has been meaningful. And there's a Tennessee team out there that's slightly dangerous this year, especially with Hendon at the at the helm. And do you think there's any chance Tennessee could go into Bryant Denny and come out with a win? I mean, I guess there's a chance because they can score some points, but probably, I mean, it's not likely. Uh, Hendon's played really well. What Josh Hype on that staff have done with Hendon and that offense has been incredible. Uh, you know, I'm sure Tennessee's not thrilled about the way the, the Ole Miss game ended from, from the standpoint of not getting the first down they thought they earned, and also the way that some of their fans reacted by throwing stuff on the field. Lane Kiffin got hit with a golf ball. Um, you know, that certainly was not a scene you want to see. But I think Tennessee has a, a small chance, but I think Alabama probably wins that one 42 to 21, 17, somewhere in that range. Yeah, I think this is definitely a game that if it was at Neyland, you definitely think they'd probably more, be more competitive than what it would be at Brian Denny. I think Alabama finds a way. I do think Tennessee probably scores up. I think it's probably like a 28-49 game. I think it's one where Tennessee finds the end zone a couple of times, but Alabama overall will just out-talent them, which, they, you know, Josh Hyken's going to have a couple of years before he gets to that. Moment. Yeah, and he has a scholarship reduction. I mean, Pruitt left them in a bad spot. Uh, looking at UVA-Georgia Tech game at Scott Stadium, if you want to call that a home field advantage. Uh, Georgia Tech, you know, they've, they've up and down this year, but they have some athletes. Sims has played pretty well. UVA's defense is susceptible. 
who do you think comes out on top? Of that? I think UVA comes out the win. I'm not, you know, UVA's got a lot to play for still. I think that they're in a situation where they kind of feel like they are the outside runner at this position, you know, still have a chance in the Coastal, still have a chance to make it to the ACC title and really steal away some momentum from some different programs. I mean, you look at a UNC, you look at a Virginia Tech, these are two programs that were at the top of the Coastal list at the beginning that they're recruiting against, and now UVA has the opportunity to kind of supplant them and, I mean, I'm not saying that talent-wise they're there yet, but they see an opportunity, and, I, and if they are a program that's trying to rise, which I hope all programs are, they're going to go after it. So I think UVA pulls this one out. Yeah, I mean, I can certainly see that. I'm going to pick the upset there. I think Georgia Tech finds a way to win at 34-31. Uh, big game in the ACC, Pittsburgh uh, at home against Clemson, 3:30. We just talked about both of these teams a little bit. Uh, obviously, we saw what Pitt had to offer last Saturday. Who wins this game? I've got Clemson winning, and it's not because of the fact that I think Clemson's more talented. I think it's the fact that Pittsburgh always seems to find a way when everything seems to be in their favor to lose a big game. And I think this is the week that happens because the fact is that Pittsburgh's the clear front runner right now in the Coastal if they can finish out, you know, this game against Clemson because you, you look at the future of the schedule, which besides UVA and North Carolina, there's really not a whole lot there. So I definitely think that Clemson's going to come in there motivated to still prove that they're there. They're not out of the Atlantic either. So I think they come in and they take the win at Pittsburgh. Yeah, I think Clemson wins. Uh, you know, it's kind of crazy to think about if Clemson were to lose this game, four and three overall, three and two in the ACC, very similar record to Virginia Tech. Uh, but I, I think Clemson finds a way to win. I'm going to say 24-20. Uh, and, and Virginia Tech beat Syracuse and is back in the coastal race, whatever that means. Uh, but, you know, with all that being said, I hope everybody out there – we hope everybody out there is staying safe healthy, uh, enjoying college football, still thankful that we can just be out there at the stadium and in Lane Stadium this year and enjoying the games live. Josh, you got anything to add before we wrap it up? I just got one more upset to tell you about, and that's going to be Miami beating NC State. I, I'm going to be shocking to you this week. I just feel like the ACC is so topsy-turvy. I, I feel like the U gets it done. I, I can certainly see that. One last guess for Manny Diaz's job. Uh, Josh, you got anything else you want to add? No, I think that, you know, everybody needs to stay as positive as they can for the rest of the season. I know that it, it hurts, and I know that you're looking at it and you're going, man, we got to get off of everybody. There's still a bunch of kids playing football this year, and I think we've all had our say this week. We all know where we're at, and repeating it every single week is not going to get better. So it's on the Syracuse, as Bill Belichick would say, and, you know, let's get the win this week. Absolutely. And, you know, I know everybody has an opinion. They're certainly entitled to their opinion, but please don't boo at Lane Stadium. Uh, some people disagree with that, but there's a time and place for that. These are college kids. Yes, they're getting a scholarship. They're still kids. Their parents are still in the stands. Please stop booing uh, in Lane Stadium until the season's over, and then you're free to have whatever opinion you want. Uh, with that being said, that's this week's edition of Teradone Talk. I'm Jonathan Hagee. I'm Joshua Hoffield, and we are signing off for the Teradone.